It's time now for the complete story with Dick Bott, a public news and information feature of Bot Radio Network to keep you informed about the most important issues of our day. Now, here is Dick Bott with today's complete story. I, I, I tell you what, Rich, today we are going to hear something that I have heard many, many, many times before over the years, but I am just as excited and just as anxious to hear it again because whenever I do hear it, it is so relevant. Oh, and it's especially relevant for the times in which we live. Isn't that the truth? Uh, But these are really difficult times, and we are in the process of making strategic decisions for the future of our nation. You know, folks, uh, now, uh, John Jay, who was uh, the first chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, he said these words. Listen to this, folks. Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers. And is the duty as well as the privilege uh, and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. Well, I suppose what he was talking about, without a doubt, is you've got to believe something that absolutely gives you the character and the moral um, the foundation to stand even when the wind is blowing the other way. This is what people want in their leadership right now. That's right. I've got another quote here by one of the other founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin, said, People willing to trade their freedom for temporary security deserve neither and will lose both. Oh, man, read that again. L- listen, folks, now, I'm wondering, are our children in our schools, we send our children to, to schools that are paid for at great price, by the taxpayers, by the parents, by the property owners. And I wonder if the children are really learning this any longer. Give us that again. Benjamin Franklin said, People willing to trade their freedom for temporary security deserve neither and will lose both. All right, now what we're going to hear, folks, is Paul Harvey. Now, (laughs) you know, many people will say, well, I don't even know who he was or who he is. Who is Paul Harvey? Let me tell you, folks, Paul Harvey was the voice of America. Paul Harvey was the conscience of America. His noon uh, broadcast every day on the, uh, first of all, ABC, the ABC network, uh, why people just listen to that all over America. They wouldn't miss it. And Paul Harvey has such wisdom. Paul Harvey was the type of media person and commentator that I just wish to goodness we had today, and, and we don't. And he would kind of give you the news behind the news. Remember, yeah. remember he would say, and now the rest of the story. And now the rest of the story. He would story. kind of tell you the headline, and then he, was tell, he would tell you what the story is about that. Well, and remember, he would always sign off by saying, this is Paul Harvey. Yeah. Good day. Yeah, good day. That's exactly right. You've got it. Now, here's, here's the thing, folks. More than 50 years ago, uh, he recorded an album called The Testing Time. I, I, and I've had that in my private collection of things going all the way back all these years. The Testing Time. The Testing Time. And I think as you listen to it, you'll think this is so relevant right for this moment, maybe more so than any other time. And I want you to listen to it carefully because I think it'll mean so much to you. So anyway, here it is, and we'll talk about it later. Hello, Americans. I'm Paul Harvey, and this is the testing time. We are being tested, you know, you and I, individually and collectively. The test isn't going to be all fun or all easy. But if you'll hear me out, I think you'll agree you wouldn't want it any other way. Our problems are not new ones. What are our problems? Death, war, and taxes. 
Well, there's nothing new about the first of these, nor about wars, hot or cold. Wars never end. Cain clobbered Abel with about a four-pound club, and men have been fighting ever since. Now then, what makes a nation strong? Taxes? <laughs> there's nothing new about those either. The first income tax was paid by Abraham. It was written on a rock by the hand of divinity and handed to Moses at the top of Mount Sinai. And you might want to remember this. It was at the flat rate of 10%. It promised the wrath of God on anybody who tampered with or violated that law. Christ was born in Bethlehem because Joseph was on his way to pay his taxes. Joseph was a relatively well-to-do landowner of the house and lineage of David. Yet the taxes exacted by Caesar Augustus were so exorbitant that he didn't have enough money left over to employ a trusted messenger for the mission, so though his wife was great with child, he made the journey himself. And Christ was born in Bethlehem because Joseph was on his way to pay his taxes. And Christ was born in a manger because there was a housing shortage when he got there. Our problems are not new. At Runnymede, the Magna Carta was handed to King John on the end of a sword, denying to royalty the right of unlimited taxation. Yet you know it was for us, the American people, to become the first in recorded history ever voluntarily to surrender our rights to private property. Oh, yes, we did with an innocent-sounding constitutional amendment, the 16th, which says that Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived. And we forgot to put any limit on the extent to which we could tax ourselves. Conceivably, we could be taxed out of all private property. We could be taxed not 70%, 80%, 90%, but 100%. We could awaken one morning and find that the government owns the farm and the house and the car and has a mortgage on the church, legally. Historically, whenever any nation has taxed its people more than 25% of their national income, initiative was destroyed and that nation was headed for economic eclipse. History says we'll roll forward on momentum for a little while, but we'd better get some more gas in the tank pretty quick. You see, ours is not the first by George good government to arise on the world stage. There have been several. Rome, Spain, and Greece, and China, and each enjoyed about 150 years at its zenith and then each decayed away. Not one of them was ever destroyed by anybody else's marching legions. Each rotted away, morally, socially, culturally, economically, simultaneously. You know, one of the most cruel paradoxes of history is this. Because each was a good government, it bore bountiful fruit. And when it bore bountiful fruit, the people got fat. And when they got fat, they got lazy. When they got lazy, they began to want to absolve themselves of personal responsibility and turn over to government to do for them things which traditionally they had been doing for themselves. At first, there appears to be nothing wrong in asking government to perform some extra service for you, but if you ask government for extra services, government, in order to perform its increasing function, has to get bigger, right? And as government gets bigger, in order to support its increasing size, it has to what? Tax the individual more. So the individual gets littler. And to collect the increased taxes requires more tax collectors, so the government gets bigger in order to pay the additional tax collectors. It has to tax the individual more, so the government gets bigger and the individual gets littler. And the government gets bigger and the individual gets littler until the government is all-powerful. The individual is hardly anything at all. The government is all-powerful. The people are cattle. Now, some believe that the need is for a vigorous strong man to arise on the scene, to regulate and regiment the affairs of men. Yet history tells us there have been several such. Once upon a time, there was a nation great and powerful and good. She was suffering from the aftermath of war, from a depression, 
And then came upon the scene a leader, an idealist, self-confident, intolerant of criticism. Wisely, he limited his early activities to combating the financial depression. Nobody could argue with that. But in a while, he began to regulate business and establish new rules to govern commerce and finance. Some of them in diametrical disagreement with the God-made laws of supply and demand, but anybody who disagreed with those new rules was promptly fired. The new leader saw that under the old system of free enterprise, landlords prospered, so he levied new taxes to take away their profits and destroy what he called the monopoly of capital. To please laborers, he controlled prices. To win the favor of the farmers, he gave them loans and subsidies. The national debt mounted alarmingly. Whenever anybody tried to tell him that governments, even as people, can go broke when they spend beyond their incomes, he said they just didn't understand deficit finance. Well, what do you say? Did he build on rock or on sand? I say on sand. For you see, this was the story of Emperor Su Tung Po, who led China to its doom more than a thousand years ago. And I am as satisfied with all my heart that if Uncle Sam ever does get whipped, here too, it will have been an inside job. It was internal decay, it was not external attack that destroyed the Roman Empire. Starting about 146 BC, internal conditions in Rome were characterized by a welter of class wars and conflicts, street brawls, corrupt governors, lack of personal integrity and moral responsibility. About 290 years after Christ, a Roman emperor named Diocletian took over. He really grabbed the bull by the horns. He took over in a period of turmoil and severe depression. The first thing Diocletian did was call in the gold and close the banks and raise the taxes. He reduced the power of the Senate, delegated its power to a lot of little government bureaus. Diocletian put millions of people on the public payroll. But when this failed to do the job, the country was still in trouble. He asked more personal powers for himself. For a brief while, incidentally, they were standby powers. But then he used them all at once. He froze wages. He froze prices. He froze jobs. He stopped profits. He dictated to the farmer what he should plant, when and how he should sell it, and for how much, and he rationed food. And what happened? The labor market closed down. Incentive was gone. Farm life became dependent on bureaucratic red tape. Exorbitant taxes cost the farmer his land. He kept for himself only a small plot on which he might grow turnips for his family. He lost the rest of it to the state. And without food and with incentive gone, city life stagnated and declined. And Rome passed into what history has recorded as the Dark Ages, lasting a thousand years. Just by turning to the left, the world has gone in circles. A nation would evolve from a monarchy into an oligarchy, from oligarchy to dictatorship, from dictatorship to bureaucracy, from bureaucracy to pure democracy, where finally the people would cry out from the chaos and confusion to the streets, oh, please, God, give us a king, and God would give them a king, and they'd have a monarchy again and start the whole silly cycle anew. Now, either we will profit from the errors of their ways, or it follows as the night, the day, our children are going to have to relive the Dark Ages all over again. We can perpetuate the military standoff. We can delay doomsday indefinitely. We can continue on the high road that's made our United States the powerhouse of the world. But again, it isn't going to be all fun. But then nothing worthwhile ever is. If we intend to stay strong enough to enforce peace, let us determine first 
the source of our strength. How come, after thousands of years of experiment, our new nation has come so far so fast? What is the secret of our success? Well, I think it had to do with a basic American's creed. Perhaps it never passed the pioneer's lips in this form, but if it had, I think he would have said something like this. I believe in my God, in my country, and in myself. I know that sounds like a trite, too simple thing to say, and yet it's a rare man today who will dare to stand up and say, I believe in my God and my country and in myself, and in that order. When the early American pioneer first turned his eyes toward the West, there were only Indian trails or traces, as they were called, for him to follow through the wilderness. Do you know today you can roller skate from Miami to Seattle, from San Diego to Plymouth Rock? In this little bitty instant, as historical time is measured, our 7% of the Earth's population has come to possess more than half of all the world's good things. How come? Well, sir, when that early pioneer turned his eyes toward the West, he didn't demand that somebody else look after him. He didn't demand a free education. He didn't demand a guaranteed rocking chair at eventide. He didn't demand that somebody else take care of him if he got ill or got old. There was an old-fashioned philosophy in those days that a man was supposed to provide for his own and for his own future. He didn't demand a maximum amount of money for a minimum amount of work. Nor did he expect pay for no work at all. Come to think of it, he didn't demand anything. That hard-handed pioneer just looked out there at the rolling plains, stretching away to the tall green mountains, and then lifted his eyes to the blue skies and said, Thank you, God. Now I can take it from here. Now that spirit isn't dead in our country. It's dormant. It's been discredited in some circles, driven underground, but it isn't dead. It's just that a few seasons ago, politicians baiting their hooks with free barbecue and trading a Ponzi promise for votes began telling us, we don't want opportunity anymore, we want security. We don't want opportunity, they said, we want security. They said it so often we came to believe them, we wanted security. And they gave us chains, and we were secure. Suddenly, with our constitutional guarantees depleted, with our national character eroding away, with our tax laws penalizing those who dare to prosper, with workers concentrating on how little they can get by with instead of how much they can produce, suddenly we looked overhead one day to discover that the first tin moon in space was a Russian accomplishment, that free men dragging their feet had been outdistanced by slave workers dragging their chains, and we were sore afraid. But as with the nuclear bomb, Perhaps this was a disguised blessing, too. Maybe a dramatic accomplishment by this Cold War adversary was necessary to get us off our dead centers and back to work again. If we can revive in ourselves, then in our youth, something of that basic American's creed, the horizon has never, ever been so limitless. For man stands now on the threshold of his highest adventure of all, his first faltering footsteps into space. Twenty years from today... Half of the products you will be using in your everyday living aren't even in the dictionary yet. We've got it made. If we just keep on keeping on, we've got it made. And if we don't, we will follow those other great nation-states of history into the graveyard of ignominious oblivion. History promises only this for certain. We will get exactly what we deserve. You see, storms are a 
part of the normal climate of life. I've not promised you a horizon of no work and all ease, all honey and no bees, because storms are a part of the normal climate of life. Sometimes the storm takes the shape of an economic catastrophe or a military holocaust or a prolonged drought or a terrifying flood. But storms are a part of the normal year-in, year-out climate of life. We sometimes think our generation has been especially discriminated against. But in every generation, young folks have wondered whether they should pursue an education or take the easiest possible way, whether they should enter the professions or not. Young folks have wondered whether they should marry or no. Young marrieds have wondered whether they ought to bring babies into an era of regulation and regimentation. In every hour of history, there have been these questions, the same as we have today, because there have always been storms to, to test men. Americans, a paradise is being prepared somewhere, a perfect place. Don't you see? We've got to prove here we deserve to be there. And if there were perpetual sunshine, there'd be no victory. So storms are a part of the necessary climate of life. This is the shakedown cruise. Here's where we separate the men from the boys. If you and I conceivably could roll out a plush carpet on which our youngsters could walk off into a problem-free future, don't you see it would not be to their best interests for us to do so. They deserve a crack at this test, too. Storms are a part of the normal climate of life. There's an election going on all the time. The Lord votes for you, the devil votes against you, and you cast the deciding vote. Americans, for some reason, are being especially tested because we have been so richly blessed with the bounteous good things which invite sloth. Storms are a part of the normal climate of life. But what happens to a rooster in a storm? He goes over in a corner of the hen house and gets soaking wet and shivers and shakes and develops, what is it, coccidiosis or pip or one of those things roosters gets and dies. But what happens to an eagle in a storm? He sees the dark clouds. He sees them coming. But did you know this? The eagle, when he sees the dark clouds out there on the horizon, takes off and lets the tremendous storm winds and the vanguard of the turbulence actually help buoy him aloft and help him? I mean the winds, the storm winds themselves are lifting the eagle until finally he is soaring above the storm in the sunshine. That's the answer, American. Storms are a part of the normal climate of life. We've got to learn to ride them. If, however, you do not share my personal conviction concerning this testing time, I mean, if the gravy train running three sections and the factory whistles summoning three shifts are creating too much din for a still small voice to be heard, let us nonetheless, with the conscience of reasonable men, preserve and protect and defend this last great green and precious place on earth against all its enemies, foreign and domestic. So help us, God. If only because so many people you never knew have broken their hearts to get it and to keep it for you. Once upon a time there was an old hermit in the hills of Tennessee always used to be able to answer any questions that the youngsters of the community would bring to his hillside cabin. He was a wise old man. But in every community, there is one scalawag, one 
borderline delinquent, one of those always getting himself into trouble, always leading others astray. And there was one such in this community. And one day he gathered his cohorts about him. He says, fellas, I have an idea how we're going to fox that old man up on the mountain. He thinks he's so smart. I'm going to catch me a bird. And I'm going to hold it in my cupped hands. And I'm going up to his cabin. And I'll say, what have I here, old man? He'll guess right. He always does. He'll say it's a bird. But then I'm going to say, is it alive or is it dead? If he says it's dead, I'll let it fly away and prove him wrong. If he says it's alive, before I show it to him, I'll crush it to death. Well, youngsters caught a small bird and went up to the hillside cabin, rapped on the door. The old man came to the door. The lad said, what have I here, old man? The old hermit said, why, it appears to me it's a bird you've caught there, boy. And the lad, glancing at his friends out of the corners of his flashing eyes, said, Yes, but is it alive or is it dead? And the wise old man of the mountain said, It is as you will, my son. That is the sum of it, Americans. We have here captured the elusive eagle of individual liberty. Now you can love it and feed it and watch it fly or neglect it and starve it, and it'll die. It is as you will. The future is in your hands. Oh, Rich, you know, I th how many times have I heard that? And every time I hear it, I just think that is as fresh as, as the morning dew, really. Well, the, that's Paul Harvey. And as I listen to that, I realize that is the challenge that he gave to his generation, the generation that precedes mine. And they were faithful to take up the, the torch and pass this gift of freedom on to my generation. And today, our generation has to decide, are we going to defend freedom and protect it for those that come after us? You know, he talked about taxes, spending, deficits, moral decay. And then in the illustration of Diocletian, the emperor of Rome, he spoke of his executive orders and taking charge of everything, leading to the decline of Rome. And then the Dark Ages, and uh, the Dark Ages that descended upon Europe after that. But you know what? It was the Reformation that brought them out. And that's what we need in the United States. We need a national revival, a great awakening. And uh, we want to be part of that by the faithful proclamation of the Word of God and, and, the, and the idea that our generation today should grab hold of this gift of freedom and, and faithfully pass it on to the next generation. When I was listening to you talk, I was thinking once again of that quote by President Harry Truman. Now, Harry Truman, he was, he was a Missouri, he was from Missouri, but he was President Harry Truman, you see. And he said, listen to this now, folks. I mean, he was a Democrat, for goodness sake. Um, he said, the basis of our Bill of Rights comes from the teachings we get from Exodus and St. Matthew, from Isaiah and St. Paul. I don't think we emphasize that enough these days. If we don't have a proper, fundamental, moral background, we will finally end up with a government that does not believe in rights for anyone other than the state. End of quotes. President Harry Truman. 
Isn't that interesting, Rich, that he said that? And it's so true. You always say we, what we need is a movement of prayer because prayer always, always precedes, precedes revival. A, a major movement of revival. That's right. Every major revival is preceded by a movement of prayer. And you know what he also talked about? He said storms are a part of the normal and necessary climate of life. You know, previous generations have faced storms in their time, but we need to be faithful and trust God, pray, and uh, seek his will All right, to serve now, him in now, our time. Now, Benjamin Rush, uh, he was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, and also he was our founding educator in America. Somebody said, you know, America is not a piece of real estate. Let's get that straight um, because there are other pieces of real estate all over the globe. America is an idea. But that's what makes America uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. First of all, life. Do we really regard it? Do we respect it? My word, here we are wallowing around whether or not Planned Parenthood should be able to use people's tax dollars uh, in order to do what they do, even in the face of clear evidence as to what they do in, in killing babies. I mean, come on, just think about this for a moment. So life and then liberty, that's freedom. Uh, you know, individual freedom, of course, requires individual responsibility. Are we teaching our young people to be responsible? That's something that they have to acquire. That has to be taught to them. So uh, liberty is something that's very, very important. But there's a way to have it. You have to be responsible and then access the liberty and then the pursuit of happiness. And ultimately, as a Christian, you see, we know that happiness is found at the foot of the cross, the forgiveness of Christ. That's a life that is worth living. But the pursuit of that, you see, is so important. Those are the three things. And and who was it who said they were not gifts from the government, for goodness sake? They're gifts from God. That's right. Governments are established to uh, protect those rights that are given from God. All right. I want to just add one other thing. Benjamin Rush, who also signed the Declaration of Independence, and he said, mothers and schools. Isn't that interesting? Mothers and schools plant the seeds of nearly all the good as well as the evil which exists in the world. So you see, there's a responsibility for the mothers to be mothers and to really teach those little ones right from the very beginning, you know, right from wrong, and plant those seeds deeply in their heart. And then the schools of America, my goodness sakes, Rich, uh, we, have, we have a meltdown and, and I don't know, maybe we don't hear as much about it as we should because people don't know what to do. They're sending their children to schools, but what are they learning? What are they learning? When they get through with the first grade, are they really, really ready to go into the second grade? Before you know it, they're in the seventh or eighth or ninth grade, and then you've got problems. Well, why do we have problems? Because they didn't learn what they should have learned in the earlier grades. Before you know it, you have someone that's 16 or 18 years of age, and then you've got a real problem. So the the mothers and the schools is what our founding fathers said. Well, you know, Dad, uh, to whom seeds. much is given, much is required. And we are blessed in abundance here in the United States of America with freedom and prosperity and a rich heritage. And we need to uh, be diligent in protecting that and preserving it for the next generation. All right. This is Dick Bott with his chapter, The Complete Story, as a public service, folks. And I'll see you later. 